Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. 
Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Virgin Suicides is over. Do you like to wrestle? So much has been said about the girls over the years. Those girls have a bright future ahead of them. But we have never found an answer. Her act was a cry for help. I heard it was an accident. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. We got a full tank of gas. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. About time. We've been waiting for you guys. Obviously, Doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. Four sisters put their own lives in jeopardy. They'll all be gone by next year. We would never be sure about the sequence of events. We argue about it still. Uh, Andy, it's is this our this is our first Sofia Coppola film? Why is that, Pete? Um, we just haven't picked the right series. I'm sure that's is, all it is. Is that I'm why? I'm sure that's is all that it is. Why? I am. Uh, I don't. <sighs> okay, <laughs> here it comes. I don't care. I don't care for for Sofia Coppola mostly because of my uh, abject uh, antagonism toward Lost in Translation. I just I, that movie baffles me how it uh, did it did well and is widely uh, I, I would say widely uh, regarded uh, well in her catalog. Like people like me. Yes, it stymies me. It stymies me how that is looked at as a fine film. Uh, and so I, I am generally an antagonist ar- around Sofia Coppola's works. But uh, that being said, I, uh, um, well, do you want to take a stab at what you think I think of this movie? I don't know. You don't like it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Suck it, Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I have I had only seen this movie once, uh, but I, I don't I don't know why we uh, haven't really uh, t- talked about it all that much. But I actually quite uh, quite enjoy it, and I I love that this was her first film, and there's just so much um, so much about that. But I, I will tell you, it's it's really interesting. This weekend we watched uh, Dear Evan Hansen, um, the uh, film version of it, and uh, that that movie <laughs> that movie. Hit me so much harder in terms of just like raw grief. There's so much grief in every frame on that movie. I then immediately watched this movie, and only one person dies in in Evan Hansen. In this movie, they all die, and it didn't feel like any it, like it. It felt really uh, lovely overall, and and I think there is a conversation to be had in in there. Why why is that? Uh, and so. That, that's what I think about it. I hope you like it, too. Do you think I did? Yeah, I think you did. I do. I think you I didn't. Like Wait, I do. You do like it. Oh, I thank God. Like yeah, you were so quiet. You were so subdued. No, I, it's funny because I, I, I didn't see this in theaters when it came out, but I did rent it sometime shortly after. Or, or you know what? I had um sun uh no ifc tv for a while mm-hmm. and like I, I i know they played lick the star the 
short film that Sofia Coppola had made. And I saw that, like, I swear that thing was on all the time. I don't know how many times I saw that, but I saw it a lot of times. And, and I probably watched this, like, paired with that. And I remember my only recollection of, of it really was that it was just very dreamlike is, is kind of how I recalled the film. So I just, I hadn't really thought of it much until then but um but i am glad that we have put it into this uh coming of age debuts series uh so i mean it's it, and it is an interesting perspective for a coming of age film as we're looking at the you know kind of the lives of these boys and and their memories of youth through their experience with these girls and the, the suicides it's it's a very interesting film, and it'll certainly allow, I think, for an interesting conversation here today. Well, I I hope so. Yes, yes. We can, we can just leave my fingers crossed that we can live up to that. Indeed, indeed. Well, when this movie was released, it was rated R. You can imagine a film with five suicides uh, getting rated R. There is some uh, some sex uh, that we have in there. There's, uh, you know, pot-smoking drinking uh, underage uh, really it's mostly just the fact that I think it's the suicides that you're dealing with in a, a kind of serious way so uh, that's uh, the film and that's what we're going to be talking about today hey you want to watch this movie and help us out well, you can. If you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in our show notes, just click on it. And really, goes for any show notes for any of the movies we've discussed. Click on it. It'll take you right to the site. You can rent or buy the movie. And when you do this, we actually get a little piece of the action. And we're up in our game in the merch store. Don't know what uh, this one's going to be because there are lots of just really horrible imagery that we could put on a shirt. I don't want to do it. I think it's the title of the film... Like, we got to get a screenshot of the title, how it's, like, written in in uh, Cecilia's handwriting, like, yeah. across the whole thing, and just have that all over. Yeah, so maybe that's what we'll do. Maybe it'll just be uh, a, a, a sketch stuff. Uh, and there you go. TrueStory.fm slash TNR merch. Go get shirts, stickers, mugs, masks, pillows. You can even just get the next real logo on everything that you could possibly want, um, especially pillows. Put, put your head mm. on our show. There mm-hmm. you go. Uh, and we'd love to know your thoughts. Uh, so speaking of what, where you're resting your head, we want to know what's in your head. What do you think about the movies that we're discussing? Send us a brief review to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie, and it just might end up on the show. We do record about two weeks before the shows drop, so get them in early. And again, it's reviews at truestory.fm. Andy, we love Letterboxd. Sometimes you might think I don't because of the way Andy treats me about it, but I really, really do. Letterboxd, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D dot com. It is the best social network for movie lovers. If you want to track your watch list, if you want to track your reviews, what you think about movies, when you watch movies, your general film diary, if you want to share reviews with others and read reviews others have written, uh, you should do that over at letterboxd.com. 
letterboxd.com. And we, this show, we have a Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That's our Letterboxd HQ page where you can see all the movies we're going to talk about for the rest of the season, where you can uh, add them to your own watch list so you can watch along with us and make sure that you're keeping up with the movies that we are adding to our catalog. If you fall in love with Letterboxd while you're there, like we have, then you can sign up and save 20% off. You remove ads, you support the team developing this wonderful platform by becoming a pro or patron member and get 20% off. All you have to do is use the code NEXTREEL at checkout, or we've put a little URL together at thenextreel.com slash letterboxed that already has a discount code applied, and this works for renewals as well. And uh, speaking of Letterboxd, if you want to know what we're talking about uh, in advance so that you can actually watch it ahead of time to leave those reviews, just look at our, uh, our, our profile. We have the list there of all the movies we're talking about for the rest of the season um, over there on Letterboxd. It's a fantastic resource, and we love it. Oh, and how, Andy, and how. Mm. If you want to uh, support us in another way, uh, you know, we actually have memberships as well. Right on our site, you can just uh, uh, click on membership and it will take you to the page. It's uh, We use Patreon's memberful platform where it's integrated right into our site and you can join as a member. And by joining, you get all sorts of bonus episodes. We have monthly member bonus episodes. Our uh, By the time this is out, our March member bonus will have dropped. It was from a previous series that we did, Couples on the Run. We talked about David Lynch's Wild at Heart. Who knows what our April member bonus episode is going to be, but the members are actually voting on it right now over in our Discord community. We also do a flick chart re-ranking episode where we uh, re-rank, we play around with doing some re-ranks on our flick chart to see if we can shake that up a little bit. And at the end of each series, we do an episode called The Retake, where we look at all of the aspects of the entire series. So our, um, you know, our coming of age debuts retake episode will be coming in just a few weeks. That's something else that members will be able to hear. Just head over to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 a month or $55 a year. So this movie is about the girls they are living in a house with very very conservative parents um james woods and kathleen conservative Turner. religious parents yes very conservative and religious parents um james woods is uh, particularly <laughs> emasculated over the course of the film just sort of gently emasculated uh and kathleen turner um she is she also struggles with uh, her relationship with the girls and uh, how she uh, treats them uh, and parents them. And as a result, the girls uh, we see early on uh, at the attempted suicide of the youngest uh, daughter that uh, Danny DeVito, whose parenting uh, guidance is always, uh, always to be accepted. Uh, he's he comes in with fantastic hair and a mustache, looks right at home in his uh, in his hair game in this movie. And he says, and smartly, uh, these girls need to be socialized a little bit. You're doing them a disservice by making them as, uh, as you know, so protected and disciplined as they are. And so that's when they start to open the door to socialization. 
for the girls, and things come off the tracks. Well, they do and they don't. I mean, the girls become, you know, teenage girls, and the parents, uh, you know, most seems like mostly mom clamps down even harder because of that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should say things come off the tracks for mom. Yeah, mom has a very hard time <laughs> handling things. It's it's such an interesting story, and you know, I, I think the first thing that I, I want to kind of talk about is the the way that the story is structured. And I guess it's somewhat similar to the book in that the book is, uh, I believe it's a number of different first person points of view that we're kind of hearing these different uh, boys who are fascinated by these girls, the boys who live in the neighborhood. The movie does that, but largely we have it narrated by Giovanni Ribisi, who is, um, he plays her previous boyfriend, as I recall, essentially in uh, Lost in Translation. But Giovanni Rubisi, he works as the voice of one of the kids. I think it was the smaller one who ends up driving the car in the in the dream sequence at the end. Yeah, that's my my understanding. It, it was it was never quite clear. So we we get it from their perspective. He's narrating it as if he it's his memory. We don't necessarily hear like like the book sounds like it was first person plural. A bunch of different boys are kind of narrating it in the movie. We do have that, but then at times it feels like it's doing this like pseudo documentary later in life. You know, we hear yeah. neighbors coming in. We hear Trip Fontaine when he's apparently like in a, I don't know, a halfway house or he's in some sort of clinic where he has to leave to go get his six o'clock treatment, right? And so he's in some place. We, we hear him reminiscing on it. Even at the very end, we have a brief moment of mom actually uh, having a line where she says something about it. And so it's interesting the way that it's structured because it almost ends up feeling like first person, but also like this pseudo documentary. I, I was really fascinated by the way that Coppola found to tell this story that really is a perspective of these girls and people's memories of them, which is something that, I think is an important element of the story, especially when you hear that um, she said, I immediately saw the central story as being about what distance and time and memory do to you and about the extraordinary power of the unfathomable. You really hear that, especially in the end uh, narration uh, by uh, Ribisi as he's talking about what's left and how it's it, they like they can't even remember the color of their eyes, things like that. It was, I found it to be a really fascinating way to construct it. I thought so, too. And and I think the dance between our experience with the girls and our experience sort of in the heads of these boys is is, I think, what what is so interesting about this movie. And uh, another critic uh, wrote about actually uh, about the beguiled, which I thought was interesting, that one of the things we learned from Sofia Coppola and one of the things she likes to continuously explore in her movies is how women act in once introduced to the presence of men, how men change the women act with each other. And this being her first film, you can sort of see how she's starting to explore that in, in a, a quite like wear it on your sleeves way in this movie that we get to see how once the door is opened for these girls to become, you know, teenage girls, their behavior changes in the presence of these young men and how they behave. And it's a social experiment just playing out on film. 
I also think it it weighs heavily in metaphor, and that's one of the reasons why the grief of the suicides of these of these young women isn't as as sort of damaging to me. I think again, speaking quite personally, that uh, it it feels so much like the virgin suicides is the the sort of death of virginity, the death of youth, the death of all of these things. And so at the end, when the boys, you know, run away and have this sort of haunting, you know, as you say, the haunting sort of description of, of life post uh, as the film closes, it feels to me like, oh, my goodness, um, you know, this is it doesn't really matter where the girls are now. They are different people than they were before. And it's done through violent imagery. But that violent imagery, to me, reads so heavily as metaphor that it's easier to watch than, than you know, even the, the death of the first uh, girl on the jumping out the window and landing on the spiky fence. It feels to me so much like a transformation and not an end. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Like so, it's a metaphorical transformation of the girls. I, almost like the they just moved on, and now it's yeah. just these guys remembering. Oh, there were those girls across the street, sort of thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because think about how you remember your first crushes, right? Like you, I mean, you you had those kinds of of relationships, and can you even place where they are now? It like w- their ultimate end, you know, was a- as much a uh, just a vanishing. Uh, as it was, you know, some literal transformation, you know, I mean, it's just like it it evaporates in memory. Well, it's interesting because one of the moments that we have very early in the film is uh, and I, I can't remember the kid's name, but, you know, a kid who moved to the neighborhood. He was the first one to wear sunglasses on the street. Yeah. And uh, he falls in love, not with one of the Lisbon sisters but he falls in love with this other girl who is like playing tennis and and you've got that fantastic shot as he's watching her of the slow motion of her of her mouth as she's like licking her lips or something you know it's just like this moment that he that he's and then she goes off for the summer to visit family somewhere else in the country or something like that and he's heartbroken and he he stands on his roof whispers i love you and jumps off yeah it's that immediate absence that uh, he's left with and there's a hole and he has to just do something with it. Thematically, it also ties into all of this. It's like, how do you deal with those memories of the one that you had that crush on and, and, and handle once, once it's not something that you can uh, have close to you anymore. So it's a, it's a very interesting aspect explored. Well, and that scene is a really good one because, because it is really funny first of all, and it's made funnier because he lands in the bushes and everybody's horrified watching, and then he stands up and straightens his glasses and walks out of the bush. But you really could, like, this is the the beauty of how, you know, how you could edit that scene. Like, you could cut that scene and just leave everybody horrified. Um, and and it that sort of conjures up a much more violent uh, sort of end. Even if you say, well, it turns out he was fine, voiceover steps in and says, yeah, he moved on with his life but the act of taking that uh, that leap right is the act of transformation for him like you can i i walk away with that at, at seeing this kid as changed by result of one his relationship a relationship so strong that forced him uh, that that moved him to jump off the roof of his house and and then to realize that he is you know and this is me 
you know, personifying again, but realize that he is stronger for the leap and moves on with his life. Right. Like we never hear anything about him again uh, in, in this movie. He is a demonstration of that transition and that transformation for this young man. And and I, I like it. And yeah, as, as you're alluding to, essentially attempted suicide. Yes. And right. So it, it's almost like an element of both sides that we have with that character. You know, this this inability to escape and the only solution is, is suicide, which, yeah, I mean, we, we see young Cecilia do the same thing very shortly afterward. You know, when she's, I, you know, I wasn't sure exactly. I mean, we saw that she had tried slitting her wrists earlier in the film. We're not sure what led to that. We pretty much are introduced to her in the bathtub. Like, that's how the film starts. She's already tried it. We're not sure why. The second time when she succeeds, it's once the parents have opened the doors to allow the party in the basement. And they have the, uh, uh, you know, all the boys are over. The girls are over. They're all trying to get along and and and, you know, kind of have fun and stuff. And then they bring in um, the kid with Down syndrome and they're kind of talking with him. And there was this interesting connection, I think, between Cecilia and that boy. It's almost like she just couldn't handle the way the other boys were uh, kind of treating him and and using him. And so it, it seemed, it, the way that it played seemed like that's the reason she walked out of the basement and went upstairs. If that is the thing that moves her to attempted suicide herself, right, then this is a, a yet another examination of unrequited love for her this time. Uh, and, and she takes, you know, she was clearly there was something, you know, already damaging for her. And then she she makes makes her next move, which is much more violent at, you know, an end. It is a horrifying end for her. Yeah. Truly is. I wonder, how does it change that moment for you that essentially the jumping off the roof opened with a joke by doing it with the the boy before doing it again with the young woman, Cecilia? It's just different aspects of the passion that you have, and especially as youth. And that's, I think, something that Coppola really captures here is this, the way that youth feels, the whole idea of angst as a as a teenager right and just like the the emotions that are are flurrying around in your brain and you just can't control them and and so we all as adults know that you get past that and things largely get a whole lot easier but at that time it seems like the smallest of things is just the biggest the biggest thing to have to deal with and you're never going to be able to get over it and it's i mean it's it's really powerful what what kids go through. And I mean, you know, I had friends when I was a kid who tried committing suicide because life was just so big and so emotional. And it was so hard for them to understand that it was just a small little road bump and they would easily get past it and, and end up having a great life. But it was a it was a challenge at that time. And while that first instance is essentially ends up being played for laughs, it does emphasize the idea of this angst this this inability for young people to get over uh kind of that 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 those moments in your life and and that kid it ends up just playing more for laughs but it really sets up this idea of what kids are are willing to do and how far they're willing to go i mean he ends up surviving 
and I mean, you know, it's her second attempt. She ended up surviving the first time, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's just, you know, I, I think that it, it speaks to the, this, this sense of it can end up seeming kind of funny after the fact, if you fail, you know, like when you look back on it, it's like, God, I can't believe I did that. But only in hindsight, right? Right. The the other thing that it it makes me think about is just the, you know, you can't, I I feel like we can't exclusively blame the girl's ultimate ends on any one thing, uh, but the collective failure of all of the relationships. And this is from the boys who are, you know, using the girls in terms of their sort of, uh, you know, fantasies and their imaginings of what the girls are really like and playing games with them and the parents for not uh, having an open communicative relationship with their kids to talk about hard things, even though they live in such close quarters with one another. And maybe because there is no you know, space beyond that relationship. It's a it's an indictment of the time that was culturally less um, open, perhaps, to those kinds of conversations, less aware of how to have those conversations. It's certainly an indictment of, you know, people like Trip Fontaine, who also didn't know how to effectively and and authentically handle his popularity and ended up using people as a result and him literally using Lux, um, you know, to to uh, make his own uh, journey into sort of adulthood. And, and, you know, I mean, there are just it's around every corner. You look at complications in these girls who were hurting and how, um, you know, they were they were trying to understand whatever comes around the next corner for them, you know, and not having the support to actually get there. Trip Fontaine is a very interesting one because he, you know, the the film pretty much lays him out as the guy who never has trouble getting women. And Lux is the first one who he can't get. And he because of that, it almost like makes him crazy. He says, I I just it, it drove me nuts because like all the other girls flocked him and he never had to work for it until Lux. And so he does, he puts on all of his charms and he, he works it and he works it and he works it. And he finally gets her and all of her sisters to go to the dance. It was really interesting. But then the way that he ends up like ending that relationship, not only the way he ends up ending it, like where they go on the walk out on the football field and they end up having sex for her first time, presumably not his, but you know, I mean, based on his, but you never know, <laughs> you never know. Right. Exactly. Um, but, and then he just, they both fall asleep and then we find out that he, he got up and walked away. And it's just, it's so interesting. The perspective from him later in life, when he is in that clinic, wherever he's staying, how he looked at it is like, you know, I never saw her again. Uh, but I, I've never felt, and I never will feel a love like that again. Like it was just like, it clearly was this explosively powerful moment of connection for him. And the way that he dealt with it was to just walk away from it. And it's almost like he felt like it was, you know, it was fine. And and it was, it, it was like, it was the perfect way to end that. So he didn't have to have anything that could taint it or something like that. It was such a strange well, yeah. perspective looking back on it. Without ever acknowledging that there was another party in it that may have been affected as well. Yeah, just the the fact that he had this image of what it would be like with Lux. And once that experience replaced the fantasy and the fantasy was thereby broken, 
he couldn't adapt. He couldn't face that. He couldn't sort of hold himself and her through that experience. The fact that he left her alone in the middle of the football field and especially calling out, you know, Coppola's sensitivity to the frame here, leaving her in the lower sort of right corner of the frame, showcasing the giantness of the of the football field is such a a, a literal and figurative exploration of loneliness at the result of this act of him walking away from her and leaving her asleep in the grass. Like that was a horrifying, horrifying experience. Like it was, it was actually, I felt like a worse scene than, uh, than any of the collective sort of actual suicides. Like I, there was more grief in that experience for me than any of the girls at the end, which was just sort of the discovery of all of the, the bodies. And it, I think it just, it speaks to effectively where he is in life. When we do see him being interviewed later, it's like, yeah, he has never figured himself out. He's never been able to grow into somebody that is effective. It's like he's, he perpetually wanted to stay in kind of that irresponsible mindset and of, uh, of youth. Yeah. Right. right. Because yeah, exactly. it's freeing. Yeah. It's, it's free to not have those sort of ties and responsibilities. Those human responsibilities of, of frankly, vulnerability and authenticity. Like he just was a show. Yeah. Right. Right. And we do see that uh, what it does to Lux, which is, you know, I mean, it's horrifying. And, I, you know, I knew people that had this exact thing happened to where they got too close to somebody and um, and then that person immediately ended it as soon as they had crossed that line. And it turned this person into somebody who just couldn't. They They kept looking for that satisfaction and that connection again, but we're unable to find it. And it ended up for Lux, person after person after person, faceless, you know, people. We never see any of the faces. We just see Lux on the roof with guy after guy after guy. And it's 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 tragic how it did kind of break her. And, you know, I, sadly, I think uh, mom's decision to lock the girls up also pushed to that because as we hear Lux say later, she's like, I can't breathe. I can't, I cannot breathe. I need air. Like they, they're stuck in this place. And if she had perhaps had other outlets, she might have been able to find more healthy ways to kind of move on. But, but she doesn't. And so it's this secret hidden thing that she's doing just to try finding connections again. Speaking speaking of of Lux, particularly at the end, and and I want to speak not of the metaphorical end, but of the literal practical end. <laughs> the way the final sort of discovery and escape were architected, right? The boys are waiting outside. She answers the door, says, "What's taking you so long?" And then she says, "I'm going to go wait in the car." I forget the line. Does she say, you wait here for my sisters or? Yeah, they're, they're going to be down in just a minute. Wait inside for them. Yeah. I'm going to go um, wait in the car. Right. Okay. What is your sense of her motivation there to leave the boys in the house and then to go get in the car? And, you know, but that's where she kills herself by presumably starting the car. And Yeah, right. She, right. We see that. We see the car. Yeah. In the we garage when found. the when the uh, the medical people open the garage door and mm -hmm. it's full of uh, 
carbon monoxide and her arm with the cigarettes hanging out the side. You know, that, well, that speaks to what do we think of that entire decision by the girls to involve the guys, period, right? Like, I mean, they could have just all committed suicide and that would have been the end of it. Instead, they plan this thing where they're all going to commit suicide, but they're going to involve the guys. They've started this communication system where they're playing records back and forth over the phone to kind of send messages to each other. The girls start leaving postcards and notes for the guys, uh, things that that hint to them that, hey, we need an escape and you're going to help us. And the guys literally, and it's how teenage teenagers think like this is a great idea we'll take our parents car and we'll the four of us will rescue the four of them and we'll just drive and and we'll be free it's such a teenager way of thinking you know like no consequences they just are in the moment and i i find it really interesting that these boys are so taken by this whole thing that they they think that this is a good idea and they're in it and they are waiting. And we do have that one moment where we flash and see them in the car and they're all free and they're just driving and everything's copacetic, only to then real cut back and we realize, no, they're still in the house. It's just a moment where they're having this fantasy while the, the last of the girls is killing themselves and dying. I, I The only thing I can think of is that the girls have this sense that they draw the guys to them. And the, these aren't even the guys who were their dates. This is something else I found really interesting. Like they had four dates. They were all on the football team. They were yeah. all on the football squad. Yeah. That took them to the dance. None of them are these four guys that perpetually like they live across the street and are always watching and seeing what's going on and, and kind of communicating with them. And I had this sense that the girls always knew that like they knew these guys uh, there was this connection with them and there there was a draw and I, I i don't know it's such an interesting decision and i don't know if i've come up with a satisfactory answer in my head as to why they do involve them other than um just kind of like one more like last reaching out in some way but it just seems so uh, dark to do that. So I'm not sure. Did you come up with any thoughts on that? No, no. That's why I'm I'm really stymied by by the way that that ends, right? Because the like these, it, it's okay. I guess if I'm going to reach, it feels very much to me like these guys were the safe guys, right? These were the guys that were you know the oddballs in their own ways. Like these these were the guys who they were already sort of building a quote relationship with um you know in in some really beautiful ways right that it was such a sensitive and and sweet game they were playing with the music you, you know the records going back and forth that you mentioned like i thought that was such a lovely um way to portray their growing relationship collectively and that these were the guys that they sort of chose to welcome into their lives and that this was the only way they knew how to do it to be sort of authentic and at peace ultimately in their own way with these guys. Um, I, I guess, you know, I can look at it that way. If I look at it metaphorically, 
you know, it, it almost feels like the violence again of turning the corner into adulthood, like the virgin suicide is inviting all these guys over. And, and, you know, there is an alternate history or an alternate, you know, uh, path where they ended up actually, you know, having a relationship with these guys and that, that sort of killed youth for them. Right. That's the, that's the sort of, you know, rose, the, the petals off the rose, uh, alternate ending, uh, of this particular journey for them because it is i mean so much of this is an exploration of the pain that comes with aging through you know teen and puberty and growing into the pain that is living as an adult that we all are saddled with every day and uh <laughs> Um, you know, and, and moving past the show that was Trip Fontaine and his football cronies. Right. Because that's right, right. all they were is show. Yeah. Did you notice Hayden Christensen, little baby Hayden? How do you not that's, notice little baby Hayden? I know. I was like, oh. Yeah. This was oh. already his sixth movie. I know. Having a career so young, so fruitful. Uh, I love it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an interesting perspective, especially because. Like this same group of guys was the one who was over earlier for the dance and in, or not in the dance for the the little party that they had in the basement. Right. Yeah. Like it was that same group of guys who had come over for that. It was that same group of guys who were connected to the girls. And perhaps there's a reason here. They were there when Cecilia killed herself. Like they were yes. part of their circle. Uh, oh, at that good. time yeah. when when she had had um, jumped out of her window and and died on that fence and so maybe there is an element there that you're already part of this darker side of our lives and yeah i think there definitely is that element that you're not you're not the football guys who kind of used us even though it was primarily trip but still uh, you're not them you're a different type of guy and it is an interesting way to almost for these guys to, like you said, it's like pushing them into adulthood. Like they've now had this dark experience with these girls that kind of shows them a whole different side of life, the, the good and the bad, and, and pushes them into a place where, uh, yeah, maybe they are a little, um, a little beyond that and uh, moving out of childhood into adulthood. So it's, it's a, an interesting perspective. Well, and because look at it. The, the sympathy of, uh, of you know, our, our sort of uh, our eye toward these guys is that they, too, have their own, you know, transformational moment in discovering these girls. Right. Like it's not one sided. It's not just looking at the tragedy of the Lisbon sisters. Right. It's and the Lisbon family and their, you know, craziness. These guys have the same sort of of, you know, immediate growing up event on discovering these girls. And that's, you know, that that goes to, uh, you know, the the sense of narration. Uh, and, and I feel like we should talk about the narration, the voiceover specifically, because, as you know, I tend to be a voiceover antagonist, too. Not here. I not only do I think it's appropriate, Andy, I love it. I love it. I love 
the voice. I love the tone and tenor of it. And particularly, this is a cheer for the love of language. This is just, I, I think it's like a lyric poem throughout the entire thing. The way that voice captures the, the, specialness of life that these and and of observation uh across 25 years sort of the benefits of hindsight i god i was just moved by it i thought it was just lovely do you agree were you as impassioned by it as i was i agree it's it is beautiful language uh, i am assuming i have not read the book by jeffrey eugenides uh that that he had written um, that this was based on, uh, I think, 93 as when the novel came out. Um, I haven't read it, so I don't know how much of the language comes from his actual book. I, I would assume, since it is an adaptation, that a lot of it does come from that. But also, I think that Coppola has a little bit of that sens- sensibility within the way that she tells a story. And so I would, wouldn't be surprised if some of that language came from her. I I think that uh, it makes so much sense for this film. I don't have as much a problem with narration as you do, as long as it's working in 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 uh, a way in the film that makes sense. Uh, I think there are times where um, where narration is overused and becomes a crutch, but um, I, I don't think it's always a huge issue. But here, you're right. It it lends to that that kind of foggy memory of what had happened and looking back on it after all these years, I think, it, as you said, I think it does say 25 years before. Right. Right. And, and so it is quite a long time, like looking back 25 years, uh, you know, that's uh, yeah, a heck of a lifetime ago. And I, I think that it, um, it captures that uh, there's a little bit of the kind of the fluidity and, um, that inability to always grasp exact exactly what what it was, you know, and so it's uh, it, uh, yeah, it's it's great. And Rubisi does read it in a way that's very. There's this sense of it where it's not he's not doing it like in an emotional way. It's it's fairly straightforward, and uh, and done in a way that just feels um, a little kind of. Um, like trying to think about those memories as well. I, I think it's uh, pretty pretty nicely done. Well, it is really nicely done, and it gets me thinking about the fallibility of memory. You know, I've been I've been thinking a lot about that, just in terms of you know the as research changes on what memories are and what memories do. I think this movie is a really interesting sort of exploration of how we remember the things that are most important to us and how those things change over time, the more we think about them, right? Because that's like, that's the latest thing. Like the more you remember something, the more you're changing it in your own sort of storage of memory. And so the thing that we think about that happened 25 years ago likely looks very little to the event as it actually happened if we were watching a a live recording of it uh, or a, a recording of it. And this this movie, I think, is an interesting testament to that. Like what we're getting is essentially an unreliable narration of uh, events that happen through age and transition and poetry and trauma and grief and love and loss and sex. And that that's that is makes up the constituent elements of this movie. And the resultant picture is a tone poem that, for me, works very, very well. 
but I can also see where if you if you don't take it with that sort of gift of metaphor that I am generously offering of myself in relationship to this movie, it could be pretty crappy. Like I could see it being just a, a real trigger magnet for for people who have, are dealing with the other side of this same sort of, of grief. If you have, you know, um, you know, suicide in your family, if that is resonant to you, I can see how this movie would be very difficult. Well, and that's the, an interesting point because it doesn't, I mean, we have plenty of messages about like, get out, reach out for help, you know, all that sort of stuff as right after Cecilia kills herself it becomes like we see the media and and we see you know teachers and everybody talking about it and passing out the green pamphlet and i loved that we even get language about the fact that they why they picked green like there were a lot of those sorts of things throughout but uh and it really becomes heavier later just like this idea of how do we help our kids reach out uh, so that they know we can help them? And so there was a lot of that, but we still are looking at a story that is about five sisters from the same household all making the decision that suicide is the way out. And I can absolutely think that there's a perspective that some people could see this movie as, uh, you know, like a difficult one to to think about when it comes to, um, you know, when you have had suicide in your own life and something that you that are uh, are dealing with or contemplating, because there's an element that it can almost look like, hey, it was a way out and they took it. And, you know, were they better off for it? I don't know, but they they found their way out. And so there's an there is an interesting and complex element to the story that I think is makes can make it challenging can we run through um a, a few of the performances any any standout performances for you that um, that you want to make sure you talk about well i mean you know we, we you mentioned a lot of the actors already but james Wood, woods and kathleen turner are um are great as the parents it was nice seeing them in the role um james woods is you know a little crazy these days but still it's it's great seeing him in here and kathleen turner you know i just I always loved her. She's she's just um, fun to see popping up in stuff like this. There's a did you did you see the happen to watch the making of uh, this movie? This is a little short backgrounder on on making. Mm, I missed it. Film. There, James Woods. They they have footage of him at his um, uh, character rap, um, and he's standing there. It's it was his. It was at the end of the the dance. That was his last scene, and so that he's standing up and he's got his his head. He's got her headset and he's talking into it so everybody can hear. And he starts talking about, you know, how he how great he said. I've been very busy and I'm I'm just working a lot and I'm making a lot of movies, but this is the one I really don't want to leave. And then he goes into some serious cringeworthy territory, which he's he <laughs> says, you know, not the least of which is because of this, you know, little crush that I have on Sophia. I mean, you guys all know about that, right? I mean, you all know about that. Uh, but really, I mean, never mind. It's really. And then uh, also because, I mean, you're making a great movie and, uh, you know, and I mean, it is the hard. It's really hard to watch uh, to watch this this, you know, uh, older adult uh, fawning over the youth. I, it was it's full of cringe for me uh, and knowing wh- where he's ended up over the last 20 years is right. Right. You know, anyhow, yes. you were saying. Indeed. <sighs> no. Rough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I think, you know, the five sisters, I think 
all work well in their roles. Kirsten Dunst is really only the one, and I should say, Academy Award nominee, Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten Dunst uh, who yes. I would have picked as the winner, but I wasn't uh, there to vote. Kirsten Dunst uh, playing Lux, the uh, the 14-year-old sister of, of 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. So she's the second youngest, which was interesting that she was um, so... Um, so much the one that the story focuses on, you know, with Trip. Yeah, I, it almost feels like a, a decision of efficiency. Like we have the collective sisters and as a vessel for what they are going through, we're going to focus on Lux, but they're all going through effectively very similar things. Do you know what I mean? Like it just felt like there is Kirsten Dunst and there's everybody else and we are just collect, just looking at them as a collective voiced through her activities. Yeah, it's A.J. Cook, Hannah Hall, Leslie Heyman, Chelsea Swain are the other four Lisbon sisters. It is interesting, though, that, I mean, no matter what, they're all underage. But it's interesting that the 14-year-old is the one that they uh, explore having the, uh, the relationship that turns into a sexual relationship with Trip. Yeah. Um, because they could have done like the 17 year old and, you know, it it would have felt maybe a little less, uh, a little less awkward, but, uh, but it is Lux. And, um, so that was, it was interesting, especially because she gets, she goes down that road where, like I said, she's sleeping with everybody on the roof of the house. I don't want to, to like spend too much time talking about this, but I will say that, uh, on average, and this is actually today, I don't know what it was like in 1999 when or this was made, or 1973, whenever. When yeah, you think now. it was it was higher or lower, but the average American loses his or her virginity at 17. Virgins make up 12.3% of females and 14.3% of males ages 20 through 24. I think there's a chart. Uh, I think we have a chart of other countries Singapore is late, almost 23 on average. Mm. Brazil, 17.4. United States, 18. So again, this is all contemporary. Um, I, I wonder what the difference would have been in, in the 70s. Um, yeah, right. So it is, I, I think that to your point, though, like entirely to your point, like it is interesting that they focus the attention of the sexual energy of this film on the 14-year-old, making her the the, you know, quote, end quote, promiscuous one, and not the 17-year-old, which would have met the average. Like, is that just done to intensify the dramatic conflict in her emotional growth? It's it's interesting, because uh, it, it's such a strange thing, because, I mean, there's a certain extent that, like you said, she's representing all five sisters, really, with all of this. Yes. But they could have done that with the 17-year-old instead of the 14-year-old. But maybe because it's the 14-year-old, it feels... Like it, it ends up lending more power to to all of the emotional elements that are going on, whereas the seventeen year old wouldn't have felt quite so, uh, been quite as much an emotional hit, maybe. Yeah. Well, and the fact that Kirsten Dunst, like part of of casting her here, is that she kind of embodies the the um, uh, someone who who is believably fourteen and also looks older. Right. That all yeah. the girls, with the exception of Cecilia, I think, look roughly the same age. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, Kirsten was 16 at the time, but I, mm-hmm. I bought her 
as a 14 year old. Yeah. You know, just totally. like I bought Josh Hartnett as who I think was 20 at the time they were filming. Um, I, I bought him as like a, a 17 year old high school kid. And, and he was right. I mean, he was, let's see, he was born in 78. Yes, um, he was 20. So yeah. he was 20. And I, I think he was a uh, believable, uh, he was still a high school student. It's not like he was just, he was an adult roaming the halls and he telegraphed as a little bit older to me, but still. Well, yeah. But as like a senior of the high school football team or something like that's, that was my read. Exactly. Right. Mine too. But also as the parents, I would have been a little um, more hard pressed to allow my daughter, my 14 year old daughter to go with the senior high school uh, captain of the football team than perhaps my 17 year old daughter who would have at least been in his grade you know there's, yeah there's an element in there no that i, as I the really parents, struggled yeah yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, because he was not uh he was he was not a good person and the fact that the parents were so focused on the things they were focused on and completely missed some of the social cues around sending all five daughters to the big dance with the football team um is I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think tells a, a major story about their family and about their relationship with parenting. Dad was he was a safety on his football team like he's of that same mindset. And I think he could he could connect with Trip. They had that connection. And so I think that's also a danger when you have the dad who essentially is an older version of Trip who. Um, doesn't necessarily see the potential harm that could come. Right. Anybody else uh, on your list you're excited about? I, I loved the, I loved all the guys um, uh, the, and the cameos, like the bit parts and stuff like Scott Glenn popping in as the priest, Danny DeVito, you already brought up as the, uh, as the, uh, the counselor. Uh, Dr. Horniker. Dr. Horniker, <laughs> right. Michael Pere as the adult trip, which I thought was, fun to kind of see him pop in he's one of those faces from the 80s uh, that um i feel like i saw a lot in a lot of random things you know just one of those guys who and everything i thought it was weird have recasting him as that voice from the clinic like as an adult i don't think he looked like um josh hartnett <laughs> i mean who does uh and so i i like I, it took me out of the film that's the, that's one of the things that took me out of the film because i couldn't figure out like what are we doing here like well it was interesting that that was the only time that we cut to a guy like we actual like interview footage of a person later in life yeah but my sense was the only reason we did that was to show this is where Trip ended up. He didn't end up in a place that is healthy. Yeah. Or in a, a state that's healthy. So, yeah. uh, you know, I get why they did it. I can understand the confusion that it leads to, but I, I get it. It does make that. me wonder if they if they at all tried to age up uh, Hartnett in the process or if it was always going to be a discussion of, of you know, we're just going to recast the adult Trip. Yeah, it's it's you know it always goes to that thing, and this was a you know an indie film. I imagine they might not have had the budget to do age makeup for twenty five years later on on him, but um, I, I it didn't bug me. I I ended up kind of buying into it, and I just kind of rolled right along. Okay. The only other person I wanted to call it was Jonathan Tucker because um, he's one of those kid faces that I just feel like I saw so many times 
when I was young, um, you know, he ended up in, in stuff like um, Sleepers right before this, which probably was um, where, uh, like, when I saw this, I remembered seeing him from that. But then he was in stuff like Hostage and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and Criminal and, uh, you know, In the Valley of Eli. Oh, something that you and I both like, The Ruins. I, I, you know, I enjoyed that film. And so he's somebody who's been working quite a bit and it's always fun to kind of see him especially in these early roles who else was in you brought up sleepers who else was in that that i'm thinking of with him what was who wasn't in that movie kevin bacon yeah you're uh, right robert de niro Uh, dustin hoffman jason patrick brad pitt uh ron eldard billy crudup was rabisi in it i don't think rabisi was in it let's see i'm looking here Uh, brad renfro um mini driver Bruno Kirby, Jeffrey Donovan, Wendell Pierce. I don't see Rabisi, but I'm just looking yeah. on the. God, list I don't know. Here. I'm 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 Mandeling myself. I just <laughs> it's one of those things that I I see his name not listed in the credits, and I still refuse to believe it. I guess I'll have to watch the movie. <laughs> uh, okay, um, this movie uh, getting it. You want to talk about getting it made a little bit? Just a little bit. Sure. We should talk about some of the technical stuff, too, because you know, lots, to, lots to discuss. Well, I, this is just in terms of getting the script. She wrote the script, um, Coppola, and she fell in love with the book. And so you go back to, you know, the the language that is that she just sort of bleeds into the narrator character. My hunch is that, you know, to hear her talk about how powerful this book was to her and to her, you know, she, she says this is the one of the very few contemporary books that she read and immediately felt like it was a classic, like it was a thing that she just was connected to. So she has a real love for what the book represented and what the book, you know, sort of was to her. She went to, naturally, her dad to Francis and said, look, Francis, can we buy the rights to this? I think we should make this movie. And he tried. He went out and tried and says, I couldn't do it. This was a very popular book at the time, and it was it had already been optioned by a very, very big uh, studio, and it was unaccessible to me. She then, unbeknownst to him, went out and wrote the script. And just she said, I just fell in love with it and I just needed to to get it out. And she wrote the script essentially on spec and took it to him, Francis, and said, all right, here it is. I know you said we couldn't get this, but here's the script. And he read it and he said, this is one of the best scripts I've read in the last 10 years because, you know, also dad. But it was a very good script. And uh, so he helped her find the uh, the folks who um, actually uh, were did own the rights to the book and built a relationship with them. And they agreed that this was, in fact, one of the best scripts that they had read of it, for sure, and moved forward with her as director. I thought that was a, that's like a a, kind of an interesting story. Yes, leans heavily on family connections. Would this have gotten made with her if she wasn't related? And, you know, if he wasn't wandering around the crafts table, you know, on big shoot days? Don't know. But uh, the result, I think, is is still uh, pretty darn good. I had read that um, they had to wait till the rights had lapsed before they before they could pitch it. Well, I'm I'm going off of of this interview with her and Francis talking about it. But again, memory is a funny thing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, they were not clear on that point. Right, right. Regardless, um, clearly that shows the passion that she had for the project. And it's entirely possible like they showed them this and then they still had to wait for the rights to lapse. Yeah. Because they, my understanding is they weren't happy with the script that had been written by the other writer 
at the other studio. And so once the rights had lapsed, then they signed on with her. And so it's entirely possible they were just waiting it out until that could happen. Right. Right. Um, uh, but a nice, uh, nice little story of obsession to the word. Like, good for her. Good yeah, for her. Absolutely. Absolutely. I loved uh, the way the film looked. Edward Lockman uh, was her cinematographer and shot it in such a dreamy way that I think captured that uh, that memory sense of it. And uh, so I, I'm a big fan of the cinematography of this film. Well, and we, we can't, you know, uh, talk about cinematography without talking about the fact that she was, you know, she's a fine arts trained photographer herself. Like that's she she went to school for photography before she transitioned into into filmmaking and and so i think you know you can really feel she has a strong sense of the frame and you you know all of the behind the scenes stuff she's got a camera in hand like she is she is shooting photos you know of the uh, of, of what she is also shooting footage of the the biggest challenge that she said what that they were having on production was just that she was overshooting a lot um you know they had budgeted five thousand feet a day i think was what they were talking about and and were blowing through that and so their their biggest challenge was getting you know film stock um to keep up with the the what she wanted to capture um but um i i just think incredibly strong eye yeah yeah, nice color color tone to the whole thing that just that adds to that looking back in the past um, and production design, costume design, uh, hair, makeup, everything lends itself to feeling very much authentic 70s. And I know it takes place in Michigan. They shot it in Toronto. So they found the right places to give it the look that it needed. And then having air and what a creative decision to have air actually do the music for it. This is um, it was kind of a surprise to have. A, a group like air which is uh, where are they they're french and they're um it's more electronic music that they that they do and so when you're looking at a period piece and and certainly it's filled with fantastic period songs throughout but then to have like this french electronic group come in to do the music i thought that was incredibly creative and it again adds to that feel oh completely yeah i i and, and i think the yeah, the music in in combination with the soundtrack. Uh, I mean, every needle drop was an emotional hit for me. I thought it was just great. Maybe uh, feels a touch manipulative, uh, but I it worked for me. Uh, you know what? I it's like score being manipulative. Yeah. Movies are manipulative, and you yeah. you want that feel in a story to kind of uh, drive your emotions sometimes. And and the way that she found the songs to like do the communicating at the end uh, when they're, when the kids are all playing records back and forth over the phone. Like I was just, oh, so it, it worked so well. So I was a big fan of all of this. And, and I, I felt like Coppola made a lot of <laughs> just creative decisions throughout that always surprised me. Like as I was watching the film, there was a time-lapse scene that I'm like, there was a moment where I'm like, it's not even time-lapse. It's almost like she's doing, and it's just a shot of the house just showing time pass and but the way that the leaves like in the in the time in the time lapse the way the leaves appear on the lawn it's almost like it's stop motion animation like it's almost like a blanket being pulled down over the lawn of leaves appearing and so it's so interesting the way that that she chose to craft this film in such kind of hallucinatory ways i, I was mesmerized i agree 
I agree. I agree so hard. <laughs> uh, anything else on the hot list? I know. I think that's it. So um, we, right. I guess then, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Curtis Cole, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and please, pretty please, prettiest of pleases, if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, like you know Apple Podcasts, please consider heading over there right now. You can pause the show, head over there right now, drop us a five-star review and uh, some kind words. All right, Andy, how to do it award season. Uh, it did okay for itself. It certainly got noticed. It had three wins, 14 other nominations. It premiered at Con, where it received or where it was nominated for the CICAE award. Uh, it lost to Kiplume la Lune. I'm just pretending I understand what that language uh, sounds like. Uh, she also la Lune. She also is <laughs> nominated no plume. for the. <laughs> Kiplume la lune. Kiplume la lune. Yes. Uh, it's just, that's embarrassing. Straight yeah, up embarrassing. You're doing great. Uh, yeah. Uh, also was nominated for the Golden Camera. Lost to Marana Simhasanam. I think I, I think I did that one better. You did. You actually sound really great on that one. <laughs> the Golden Camera, as we have said, is uh, first films uh, at the con. Uh, the Con Film Festival. What is the CICAE award? I have to look now. CIC. I wrote it down. The KK. I think that's. I think that's how you. KK. 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 Look up here. 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 Confederación Internacional Cinema Artes Yes, an international nonprofit association with address of record in Paris, which tries to support and to promote art cinema. It is the only international art cinema organization of its kind, founded in 1956. So there you go. It is a group that is working at supporting and promoting art cinema, as it's called. So there you go. Good on them. This is considered art cinema by the folks at KK. <laughs> The film also over at the at the Casting Society Awards uh, won the Ardios Award for Best Casting for a Feature Film Independent, which is fantastic. I, I would agree, a fantastic cast here. Uh, Coppola won Best New Filmmaker at the MTV, MTV Movie and TV Awards, and she also won at the Young Hollywood Awards for Best Director. So you know, it 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 had a, a small splash in the in the two uh, thousands. It didn't make a big one, but it did get. Notice that it needed. Okay. Did it make any money? Uh, well, we'll find out. Coppola had either six or nine million dollars to work with based on what's out there. It's a little, uh, you know, awkward because they, they both kind of 
uh, are around as far as one or the other. I'm just going to assume that they mean it was a $6 million production budget and either they went over by $3 million or they ended up spending $3 million for prints and advertising. It's very unclear, unfortunately. But what it does, if you look at the $9 million, it puts it at almost $13.9 million in today's dollars. The movie, as I said, premiered at Con the same week as last week's film, Ratcatcher, in May of 1999. And then it finally had its U.S. debut nearly a full year later on April 21st, 2000, opposite U571, one of our upcoming movies, Love and Basketball, Gossip, The Other Conquest, Cropier, and The Last September. It did okay for itself, earning $4.9 million domestically and $5.7 million internationally, which together combined to $16.4 million in today's dollars. All told, it gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $26,000. All right. All right. Made some money. Made Kicked some Sophia's money. Kicked Sophia's career into gear. Yes, Good for her. I like yeah. it. Uh, I like it. I'm glad we watched it. Uh, it's uh, lovely. And um, I guess now I realize I really prefer to watch it metaphorically than literally. Uh, and I hope others do too, because it's less sad. <laughs> and who needs sad? In who our movies? needs sad? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm glad uh, that I revisited it because it's one of those films that I enjoyed, but I also had kind of, interestingly, for this particular film, I kind of had the same sense memory of it that the characters do of the girls. It's like it was there, but only little pieces of it. Um, and uh, But now I have a much stronger memory, and I'm glad I went back and revisited it. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. We'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. 13. Remember Ziva Zamora. Looks like she grew up this summer. What's up, B? <laughs> nice socks. <laughs> what do you think? Mom, do I look okay? You look incredible. Here, Mom, listen to this. It's not simple, nor is it an easy matter to explain. Let's just leave it at that, she says. And closest the holy book of lies, she covers her eyes. Tracy! We gotta talk about it when I get back, okay? Cute shirt. Call me after school. We can go shopping. One, two, three, go. Guess who I hung out with today? Evie Zamora?
what are you going to do for Letterboxd, Andy? What are you What are you going to do in your review? I uh, this it's definitely a kind of a hallucinatory film that I. It's funny because I feel like it will fleet from my mind again, but now I just remember um, that it was a strong film, and it's certainly something that. While I personally don't like it as much as Lost in Translation, and my guess is you like this a lot more than Lost in Translation, um, I still feel like this ranks fairly high for me. Like, I just find so many interesting things in it. So I think I'm going to go four stars and a heart. I am going to go four stars and a heart, too, Andy. We're twinsies. Samesies. This is so great. I'm so glad that we agree on this movie. I didn't want to come here and fight with you today. I mean, I would have had I needed to. I was convinced that it was going to be a one star from you, knowing uh, <laughs> your opinions of Sofia Coppola. But I, I, again, I've, I guess what well, I have taken your opinion of Lost in Translation and spread it to all of Coppola. And the, that was wrong. I, I think that's what I was thinking about that this morning. I think that is what has happened to you. And that is I'm looking at I, I have seen, uh, let's see, 58 percent of her total catalog yeah, is listed by Letterboxd. Um, and there are some things that I don't care for, none as much as Lost in Translation, but uh, most of them I'm pr- actually pretty fair on. I would talk about more movies. I didn't like On the Rocks. Uh, that was, that just didn't, that was... I didn't uh, either. I didn't either. You've seen of more of her stuff than I have. I'm guessing you watched A Very Merry Christmas. I did. That was that was what put me over the edge. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Um, I, I missed Marie Antoinette, which she also did with Kirsten Dunst. I missed the bling ring and I missed somewhere of her. Marie Antoinette has some funky stuff going on in it, like funky care, like identity stuff in it. Like, like blinker, you'll miss it. It's Converse all stars. Like, so like there's, it feels like Dickinson to me, the Apple TV plus series. Like it's doing something sort of similar with crossing tones and times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the beguiled, you're a big fan of that. Right? I, I am. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. like that story. I like what she did with it, and um, I, I, I like both iterations of that film. But uh, I think that she was the perfect person to come back to it. Where do you Where do you stand on the bling ring? I haven't seen it. Oh, did you just tell me that? And I, I did. Didn't I did know that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well. I've only seen Lost in Translation, The Virgin Suicides, The Beguiled, and On the Rocks. Um, plus that short film, Lick the Star. You should see the bling ring. I would talk about the bling ring on this show. Well, we should do a Coppola series. I'd love to. I would do that. I, I yeah. mean, I, I think it would be uh, interesting to look at some of these other films of hers. So, yeah, me too. Let's do it. Okay, uh, it's future, future us. We're gonna do future. It yeah, we, future. Three, four years out now. Three, four years. Yeah. Maybe I'll soften about. on Lost in Translation by then. Maybe I'll hey. just age into not caring anymore. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So what did you think about The Virgin Suicides? We want to know. Hop into our Show Talk channel over in our Discord community. We're going to be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd, give it, Andy. As Letterboxd, always do it. So, like, I don't even know where to start because mine is from Grace, who didn't give it any stars. It is an Ooh. unstarred comment. Some people where don't. Do you, I mean, Some people I don't, don't even know where to put it. But uh, I will say this. <laughs> Movie is called The Virgin Suicides. 
the virgins, colon, commit suicide. Me. Teary emoji, wow emoji, shock face emoji, wow emoji again, sad face emoji. Oh my God, no way. (laughs) (laughs) That tickles me. It tickles me so. I know why it tickles you. You are obsessed with emojis now. I'm surprised that there weren't star emojis in there because that is really what you have recently gravitated to. Yeah, no, I'm a big star emoji fan. I'm also a fan of the half face emoji and the melty face emoji. Those are new. If you were, here's a question for you. If you were rating movies with faces, you could use half faces, Pete. Do you see what I've just done for you? Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. I could half face. Yeah. Okay, you've given me something new to think about. As always, Andy, (laughs) you've given me something new to think about. That's that's why I'm here. Uh All right, well, I've got a three-star by John who says, I'd like to imagine the burning of the KISS record is what really made them decide to go through with things. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. That was a a big one for me, too. (laughs) It was when she called on Aerosmith. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. What are you? What? No. <laughs> the kiss, oh, throw that amazing. one at the zombies. That's fine. But <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>